If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. last week's episode, Leave Us Alone, we discussed the Klein Falls axe attack from 1977. College students Terry Jentz and Ava Goldman were in Oregon starting their summer cycling trip across the Trans-America Trail. A few days into their trip, they were attacked while camping in Klein Falls State Park. The attacker drove his vehicle over the women's tent, got out, and hacked at them with a hatchet. Miraculously, both women survived, albeit differently. Avra Goldman, whose vision was impacted from the blows to her head on the night of the attack, didn't remember a thing. She resumed her life graduating from Yale and going on to get a medical degree from Yeshiva University in New York. Terry Gents did remember. In fact, not a day went by that she didn't see the history of that night written all over her body. As she described her story to the people she met, she would roll up her sleeve to show them her, quote, perfect axe cut. And while she told the story countless times, often combining words with laughter and brightness as if telling an exciting story that didn't happen to her, it did. And she carried it every day. In the stiffness of her healed body, in the sleeping bag and bicycle from that night that she still kept, in her fear of speeding cars and everyday objects like certain types of fabric or light, in every scar, in the obsession she had with extraordinary news stories, and in the grief she carried due to the loss of her friendship with Avra, whom she no longer interacted with. In Strange Piece of Paradise, Terry wrote about her ordeal and her life thereafter. Much of it explores her inner thoughts as she navigated through life and dissected her emotions and motivations. In one scene, she described how a colleague once told her, after finding her quietly sitting by herself, that she looked like a puppeteer had left her body. Upon reflecting on that comment, she wrote, I wasn't fully inhabiting my body. Maybe you could say part of my soul fled into the desert that night back in June 1977, fled the instant the truck struck my chest. Maybe you could say it abandoned my fragile, mortal body, and it hadn't yet climbed back in. So what was a woman to do but go find that part of herself that fled? After 15 years of living without that part of herself, she finally sold her bike and disposed of her blood-stained sleeping bag. She also decided to take pen to paper and write a book about her own story. Her own story would turn into more. The recollections of the people who remembered what happened in Klein Falls and the search for the man that was never punished for what he did. 
Terry decided the only way to write her book was to go back to Oregon in the place where that fateful night occurred. And in October of 1992, she packed up her car, picked up her friend, and drove from L.A. to Oregon. Terry had resigned herself to retrace the trail she had taken before she was attacked. She would go to Klein Falls State Park and see where her story would lead her from there. But first, Terry had to go to Salem to get her hands on the police report about what happened in Klein Falls. She had called Deschutes County before her trip. Deschutes County is where the cities of Bend and Redmond reside. When she called, she was told that the records had been destroyed, so if she wanted to get any information, she'd have to go straight to the state police. Once she arrived at the state police in Salem, they handed over the report, and unfortunately, that's when she learned that after a three-year investigation, a meager 30-page report had been compiled. On the front page, she saw the words, attempted murder, typed next to her name, and as she flipped through the pages, she realized that there had never been arrests made. The documents listed the victims, the weapon, interview notes from potential witnesses, and a description of what happened. Here's an excerpt. On the late evening of June 22, 1977, two young female bicyclists camping at the Klein Falls State Park near Redmond were assaulted. The victims had retired to bed in a small camp tent near the Deschutes River. A vehicle operated by an unknown male subject was driven over a curb, across the lawn, and onto the tent occupied by the two victims. The assailant subsequently attacked the victims with an axe-type weapon, causing severe head wounds and fled the scene. It went on to describe the scene, quote, Klein Falls Park is located five miles west of Redmond on Highway 126. The park is a state-controlled rest area on the east bank of the Deschutes River. It is used by both local residents and the traveling public as a picnic facility, swimming, and fishing. There's an access road about a fourth mile in length leading from Highway 126 to the grounds. There's a one-way circular driveway through the park with restrooms at the north end and a large parking area at the southern portion. The victims had situated a two-man tent near the riverbank. Tire impressions were noted leaving the paved roadway over a seven-inch curb and traveling in a near-half-circle type maneuver. The tracks led back to the roadway to the curb and pavement. Near the apex of the turning tire impressions was a large quantity of blood in the grassy portion of the park. There were five different interviews with witnesses that described a man with a red truck being near the campsite, and yet not much more. It appeared no one attempted to try to find the man. Emily, in the crime scene photo that I've seen and what you just described, the big swath, swath or swatch of, of, of blood mm -hmm. on the ground, it was hard for me to tell, well, I still don't know, where that blood generated from, because that's not where the tent was, right? The, the blood no. stain is almost is like is right on the edge of the asphalt of, yeah. the, of the little lane and the campground. So it's like so right on the grass. I couldn't tell for certain, but from from what I gathered, that's from Terry. So as you know, she got up, ran to her friend, ran to her bike, ran to the road. Oh. I think that's where she was standing when she was talking to the people in the oh, truck. Oh, she was just pouring blood. I always assumed it was like something that. When the when the truck hit them, like or, or maybe maybe the blood got like collected in the the tent or something, and when he drove around, it like dumped it out. But no, it makes I, sense that she yeah. was standing right there because that's where they would have been parked. Exactly, I and I thought, yep. and I definitely think uh, there was no like blood from her until the hatchet. Yeah. Um. So that makes the most sense. But she was standing there for quite a bit, like running to them, flagging them down, talking to them. Um. And they said she was ble bleeding profusely, like totally head to toe covered in blood. There were other notes on suspicious activity in the area. 
a man named Stephen Douglas Malik had attacked two young female hitchhikers with a wrench in 1974. Police considered that he could have possibly returned and used another toolbox item as a weapon. There was also another man, Joseph Hamilton Stegner, who was in custody for beating a female hitchhiker with an unknown weapon. He had also been a suspect for another case where a woman was murdered in an Oregon park. And yet the file didn't seem to allude to police making any effort to investigate these men. In the final few pages of the report, Terry finally saw the name of a single suspect, Richard Wayne Godwin. In the very late night hours of October 1st, 1976, Loretta Tolentino, Jack Wheeler, and Loretta's two children, a seven-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl, were driving through Oregon and making their way to Idaho. Loretta was looking to start over and chose the city of Post Falls, Idaho. The family took a break on their road trip in Blue River, Oregon, a small town about halfway between Eugene and Redmond. They pulled up to the Forest Glen Cafe Cougar Room Lounge and parked. The kids were asleep, the boy in the front and the girl in the back, so Loretta and Jack left them in the car so they could take a quick break. The cafe bar closed around 1.30 a.m. on October 2nd. Loretta and Jack returned to their car to get back on the road, and that's when Loretta saw the blanket that had previously been covering her sleeping daughter on the ground behind the station wagon. As her eyes drifted up, she realized her rear window, which had an outside crank to unroll it, was down and her daughter, five-year-old Andrea, was no longer there. As Andrea would not have been able to open the back window from the inside, it was quickly determined that she had been kidnapped. A two-day search of the area commenced, but she was not found. By Monday, the search was called off. Two other girls of similar ages would be found dead near the area, and each time one of those little bodies was found, it was thought that it could be Andrea. But they weren't, and unfortunately, the mystery of what happened to her would go on for two more years, until police got word from an inmate who said he knew who killed Andrea Tolentino and where they could find her body. Floyd Forsberg was in prison because he murdered 20-year-old Denise Catlin in Bend, Oregon in 1975. In 1979, Forsberg told authorities he could help solve six homicide cases. So your first question might be, what was he hoping to gain from exchanging information? Forsberg said he simply wanted FBI agent Stanley Renning to take a lie detector test and answer six questions. Now, I'm not sure what those questions were, but it's likely something to do with his own murder case from 1975. Forsberg was already awaiting trial for a million-dollar bank robbery he had committed in Reno, and he was also standing accused of another murder from 1974, an accountant that was murdered in Portland. He claims another inmate, Roderick Addict, was the one to blame, and by giving up these six murders, maybe he could gain credibility with authorities, and in return, who knows, maybe he could get himself a new trial because he said he was wrongly accused of that murder. Now, a trade must have occurred because Forsberg held up some end of his bargain. He led investigators to the remains of a five-year-old missing girl, and he told them that a man named Godwin, whom he met in prison, had confessed to everything. Richard Wayne Godwin, or Bud Godwin as he was referred to, was arrested for the rape and sodomy of a five-year-old Springfield girl in the early 70s. And like many of the cases we present, let the disappointment set in because, of course, those charges were dropped and it wouldn't be the last time those types of charges would surface for Godwin. In 1977, 
he was convicted for sodomizing his five-year-old niece in Cottage Grove. He was eventually let out of prison, and while on probation for that crime in 1979, he was arrested for molesting his five-year-old daughter. You see a pattern there? Mm-hmm. For the probation violation, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. While in prison, Godwin apparently confided in Forsberg about all of the other crimes he committed. Now, why would he do this? Well, that's because when I say confided, I mean he leveraged the knowledge of his crimes he committed for protection from someone in prison who was more powerful than him. Floyd Forsberg, you know, uh, child child rapists don't do really well in prison. So he was looking for some some help. Forsberg was more than happy to hear everything Godwin had to say. He wouldn't just protect him in prison. He would use that information to get in the good graces of the people who put him behind bars. The first of Godwin's crimes that he would use to make progress on his goal was to help police locate the remains of five-year-old Andrea Tolentino. Forsberg claimed that Godwin not only confessed to him but wrote it all in a letter and even drew a map of where they could find her. Now, when they asked for that letter, he refused to give it to police, but he committed the map to memory and even walked police to the girl's remains himself. About 50 feet from the area he led them to off a remote logging road, they found nine human bones and two teeth several inches below the ground. That accuracy instilled confidence in the police that he was right about Godwin. Eventually, they even struck evidence gold in Godwin's mobile home in Springfield, Oregon. In a paper bag hidden in his closet, they found a skull that had been used as a candle holder. It was a real human skull and that of a child, no less. Upon forensic testing, authorities were able to match the remains with the skull. The two teeth found with the remains fit perfectly into the skull that was found in Godwin's house. Godwin was eventually indicted in 1979 for murdering Andrea. He pleaded guilty and admitted to rolling down the window of the Tolentino station wagon, abducting the sleeping girl, putting her in his car, and driving her to the woods where he raped her and then choked her to death. For his crimes, Godwin was sentenced to 17 years to life. The forensic analysis also showed evidence that Godwin had previously had sex with the skull, a little fact that would help keep him from earning parole multiple times. Now, Forsberg didn't stop there with the snitching. He claims Godwin committed other serious crimes. In this list was the abduction and murder of a 35-year-old Eugene teacher named Kay Turner, who disappeared while on a run near Camp Sherman. Her body was found in nearby woods months later. He also accused him of the 1977 drowning of a six-year-old boy whose body was found in a mill pond and originally deemed an accidental drowning. And finally, he claimed Godwin was to blame for the Klein Falls axe attack. Godwin said this was not true. Yes, he killed the five-year-old girl, but he had nothing to do with the other crimes. In fact, he went on to take multiple polygraphs, and in every test, he passed. And in some cases, he even had an alibi. Though in 1979, police told Marvin Gents that their single suspect was cleared of the attack thanks to a polygraph, The case notes Terry read in Salem didn't exactly clear him. Police seemed to think he could still be their man, and yet no one put any time or effort into looking into it. Terry found herself making a pro and con list of sorts on whether or not Bud Godwin could be the cowboy. So let's start with the pros. Bud Godwin drove a maroon 1976 Chevy pickup with a white camper. 
If you recall from last week, this was very similar to the vehicle multiple witnesses claim was in the park that day. Forsberg told police that Godwin had a motive. He had been having a sexual affair with his niece, Robin Williams. Now, that name may ring a bell for you, and no, I do not mean the late comic that gave us the iconic character of Mrs. Doubtfire, but Robin Williams was one of the witnesses in the Klein Falls attack. In our episode, Leave Us Alone, I described that a group of teens were in the park that night around 11 p.m. 14-year-old Robin told police she saw a man she described as in his 30s, about 5'9", wearing a light shirt and jeans. Now, this somewhat describes her uncle, but I would think she would have recognized her own uncle, right? Why would that not have been a part of the interview? But it is quite interesting that this man's niece happened to be in the park the day of the attack, and now his name is coming up as someone who may have been involved. So Godwin, who is currently in prison while they're unfolding this, is accused of, I mean, technically grooming and raping his niece, and that he he had a motive because she had moved on and maybe was there with another man. I don't remember if there was any sort of description of Godwin there as far as is. his, uh, well, the neatness of the cowboy torso. Does that match up with who Bud Godwin is? I feel like maybe, well, I don't want to answer the question for you, but he just seemed, this, the child's skull just seems much different than the sort of thing that Agreed. the truck attack. And is. I think, and, and I'll talk a little bit about this coming up, but uh, the motive is very different, right? I mean, you don't really see that happen in too many criminals going from traditional motive that he clearly does five-year-old, 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 you know, and yeah. then suddenly these two grown women. Um, he also is not neat. And we'll talk a little bit more about his description in a few minutes. Yeah. The nature of his crimes really kind of made me think that he might be well, disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I would have to agree with you. According to Forsberg, Godwin was having a sexual relationship with his niece, Robin. He believed that Godwin mistook the two girls in the tent as his niece, a.k.a. the child that he would have been grooming and raping. He thought she was there with another man and that sent him into a rage and that he wanted to teach them a lesson. And that's when he drove over the tent and attacked the girls with a hatchet. Hmm. Yeah. I don't buy that. Seems like a stretch. Because I remember like something that stuck with me from last week as the lone person in the room that doesn't know the case really well. Mm -hmm. When he was slow with the axe, like when he was taking his aim, and he had already struck another woman that right. wasn't his niece. So, okay, she's not there with another man. And you can see that it's not your niece. So that doesn't really compute. Yeah, I would have to agree. Now, what about the cons? Well, after these allegations surfaced, Robin denied any claims that she had any involvement with her uncle, Bud Godwin. She mentioned how when she was younger, she was a little bit scared of him uh, for good reason. But as she got older, they were actually quite close, but it never was inappropriate. He also took a polygraph and the results indicated that he had nothing to do with the attack. Though it was never proven that he had anything to do with the Klein Axe attacks, it would have been easy for police to believe he had and never pursue it. After all, this guy was sent to prison where he sits to this day, and the Klein Falls case couldn't have been prosecuted because of the statute of limitations for attempted murder. So if you were in charge of this case and could delude yourself enough to believe he did do it, what's the harm in closing the case forever? To Terry, that was terrible and infuriating. There was always a chance Godwin would get out of prison. If you recall, his sentence was 17 years to life, and life varies, right? It often means parole at some point. So her fear was 
whether he did it or not, he's a bad guy and he could get out and do that again. Wouldn't it allow the people of the area to sleep more soundly if they knew without a doubt that the person who committed the Kleinfalls crime was located, the weapon found, their tires matched, the tire treads left at the scene, or perhaps a confession? Though Godwin was by any description a monster, Terry didn't think he was the neat and tidy cowboy that stood over her body holding a hatchet. Godwin's prison records note that he's 5'6". Terry remembered her attacker clearly as 5'10 to 5'11", meaning Godwin was 4 to 5 inches shorter. As he was born in July of 1945, he would have been 32 years old, and Terry was adamant that her attacker was younger. She studied his pictures that could be found with his prosecution records and tried to envision Bud's face where the faceless cowboys had been, and it just didn't seem to fit with the meticulous cowboy. Terry also educated herself on the different types of offenders. As she considered what she learned about offenders who the FBI categorized as either disorganized or organized, she realized Godwin would be considered organized. He took the time to cover his tracks and hide a body during his crime. He showed evidence of grooming other victims, which takes control, patience, and planning. The person who attacked her could be considered disorganized. The motive was hazy. The tire tracks were left behind, allowing the police to not only map out the events of the night, they even had evidence to match a vehicle against. And while the weapon wasn't left behind, there was no attempt to clean up the crime scene. He even left victims who caught a glimpse of him alive. It's interesting that the Godwin guy looks and is like this disgusting person, but he's considered organized. And then here's this guy who's like the clean cut, yep. well put together, but because it was so chaotic, it's disorganized. And How that's, interesting. that's the interesting thing about crime. It's like it doesn't really have anything to do with your appearance most yeah. of the time. A lot of like planned, organized people are also like really good about their grooming and stuff. Right. But in, in a lot of cases, you can't match up the killer mm-hmm. to their looks, you know. Terry managed to get on the phone with Godwin's ex-wife, Martha, who confirmed that he was highly intelligent wore jeans, but never dressed as a cowboy. He also wasn't someone that would ever be described as tidy. Godwin was a serial child molester. Why would he change his motive and kill two adult strangers? Sure, organized people can get enraged just like anyone else. And maybe the story about his niece was true and he killed them thinking it was her. It just didn't seem likely. So if the hatchet man wasn't Godwin, who could it have been? After visiting Oregon in 1992, gathering the sparse police report, making contact with a few people who had worked on the case, and failing to contact Bill Penhollow, the teen who had saved her and now refused to speak to her, Terry returned home to California. She stewed on what she had learned. The little information she got from the police reports and her repeated calls to people involved in the case didn't get her any closer to a suspect. In fact, it pushed the actual suspect a bit further away in her mind, and thus she made little progress on healing herself and returning that part of herself that was lost. So she went back to Oregon several times from 1994 to 1997. While sitting in a hotel room in Sisters, Oregon, Terry reread the police report and her eyes fixed on the notes regarding her rescue. Quote, At 6.05 p.m., 6.27.77, 
William Lyle Penhollow was interviewed regarding his actions and observations on the late evening of 6-22-77 when he found the injured girls at Klein Falls Park. As near as he could estimate, it was about 11.30 p.m. 6-22-77 when he entered the park with his girlfriend. As he was slowly driving through the one-way entrance, he saw a flashlight in the grassy area to his right. He could hear a female crying out for help, stating something about being run over and attacked, and she was afraid her friend might die. He later learned that this was Terry Jens. He helped the other girl into the cab of his pickup. She was semi-conscious, and both were bleeding badly. At the Jens girl's insistence, he took all of their property in the back of his pickup, and Jens rode to the hospital in the back of his vehicle. He was unsure but thought he delivered the girls to the Redmond Hospital between 11.30 p.m. and 11.45 p.m. While he was in the park, he did not observe any other vehicles except a pickup some distance away turning around near the restroom. He was occupied with the two injured girls and noted only that the vehicle was equipped with some kind of covering in the back similar to a canopy. Reading this reminded Terry that she needed to talk to Bill. On her previous visit, she spoke to someone who was acquainted with the family and offered to contact them on her behalf and try to set up a meeting. The family declined. Apparently, Bill had a hard time with what happened. Initially, he was hailed a hero, and that propelled him through the first few months of life after rescuing the girls. But eventually, the trauma set in. He had sleepless nights and nights filled with terrifying dreams. The family didn't want to make that trauma worse, so they had declined talking to Terry. But she wanted to try again. Perhaps he could help by giving her a puzzle piece to the strange puzzle she was trying to put together. I am sorry. I understand he's experienced trauma. She's trying to solve her attempted murder where she was axe attacked and driven over. Also, I think they were making a guess. Like, I don't think anyone actually asked him. Oh, they were all like protecting him. Yeah. And I get that. And I'm sure he had a horrible trauma from it. But that's just like, that's hard to understand it why is. you would like, no, sorry, I can't talk and to And I you. think that's why she wanted to try again. And she did it a little bit differently this time. Terry wrote Bill a letter that, and she basically said, I'm coming for a visit. Terry made her way to the Penhollow's home where she met Bill's parents, Clyde and Carol Ann. And she explained who she was and learned that Bill happened to be out of town. But it wasn't because he was avoiding her. He had something to do. But he actually told his family he was expecting her. So everyone was prepared for her visit. Now, apparently times had changed because the family was more than happy to talk to her this time. As they chit-chatted, Terry looked at photos on the wall and a woman arrived. Now, this was Bill's girlfriend, Lorene. Right away, there was this energy about Lorene, and Terry and her were just kind of drawn to each other. Lorene had a keen interest in the Klein Falls axe attack, and she was super eager to discuss it. Terry told her all about Godwin, the single suspect noted in the police records, to which Lorene assured her she knew who did it. It wasn't Godwin. It was Richard Joseph Dam, known as Dick Dam, the hatchet man. Terry was taken aback by what Lorene had just told her, that she knew Dick Dam had done it. This man, her cowboy attacker, had a local nickname. She needed to know everything. Lorene started with a story that helped paint a picture of who Dick Dam was. Dick was a 17-year-old high school student. He was attractive, tall, and lean, and he was known to have a violent temper. Most people knew not to piss him off, but that temper didn't keep him from having girlfriends because, like a lot of terrible men, 
he had charisma and drew girls into him. Years before, in the summer of 1977, Loreen had a job with a bunch of other teenagers on a seed ranch in Terrebonne where they dug up onions. Just a day or two after the attack in Klein Falls, Loreen said there was a disturbance while at work. One of the teenage girls that worked on the crew, Janie, was dating Dick Dam. That day, he drove onto the ranch, ran up to Janie, and in a low voice suggested that they needed to leave and that she didn't know what he had done. He got more insistent, but Janie continued to refuse him. They ended up fighting, which quickly turned physical. Dick pulled her into a pond nearby and kept pushing her head underwater and hitting her in the face. Throughout the story, Terry picked up on many clues. Dick Dam often got angry. He did drugs and he had a pickup. Lorene claimed to have once seen him sitting on the tailgate of his pickup truck, cleaning the initials DD that he had carved into a piece of wood. It looked like he was cleaning blood out of the initials. When asked, he said he had been killing coyotes and that's where the blood came from. Perhaps that wood was actually the handle of a hatchet, the one that was used on Terry and Avra. She also learned that not only was Dick fit, tall, and attractive, like she remembered her attacker being, he was known to dress like a cowboy, wearing cowboy-style shirts, belts, boots, and Wrangler jeans. Lorene went on to say that Bill had seen the headlights of a pickup that night when they saved the girls. Dick Dam dressed like a cowboy, but he wasn't in any way a cowboy, right? As far as I know, yeah. yeah. I think one of the guys in the story describes three different types of cowboys. Yeah, I the ones that. that dress like them, the ones that actually are. It was, I don't remember the third one. And then third the one. third one was the, the ones that are too drunk to even right. like, get on a horse. Yeah. <laughs> right. And he was a drunk cowboy, yeah. by the way. Lorene <laughs> <laughs> went on to say that Bill had seen the headlights of a pickup truck the night when he saved the girls. And that's the one that was detailed in the notes the police took during his interview. Bill had told Lorene that he thought that pickup could have been Dick's. During her time at the Penhollow house, they mentioned that Bill's ex-girlfriend Darlene Jervis, the one that was with him when they rescued Terry and Avra, still lived in town and was affectionately known as Boo. Bill's mother called Boo and handed the phone over to Terry. Terry told Boo about how much she wanted to meet her, and Boo, to her surprise, was excited to meet her too. Terry met up with her at a local coffee shop to get to know the woman that helped save her. It turned out that the night of the attack, she had actually dumped Bill, but he was so upset that they drove to Klein Falls to talk. Boo described how she was the one who urged Bill to stop and pick up the girl who stood outside covered in blood. Bill was worried that it was a setup. Boo said that when she got out of the truck, the first thing Terry said to her was, quote, I was hatcheted up. It turned out police never interviewed Boo after they rescued the girls, but she had an interesting detail she shared with Terry. As the pair helped the girls into the truck, she remembered a vehicle driving by incredibly slowly. Terry had no memory of a vehicle outside of Bill's, but Bill did as well. I will say there was a difference in their accounts. Bill saw a truck. But uh, Boo saw a car and she was adamant about that. So that it's interesting how like people are seeing the same thing and yet everyone's recollection mm -hmm. is a slightly different. But it makes you wonder, like, who did that vehicle belong to? Was it this attempted murderer? Was it one of these witnesses who claims to have seen something? Uh, that's like all I thought about throughout the whole book. There's a part when Boo is describing the 
uh, like this, with the rescue when they picked up Terry, got her stuff, and then went to get Avra, that Boo and Bill were standing over Avra, and Terry was there too in her sort of manic, you know, survival mode. And that Bill and Boo both froze when they looked at Avra because they thought, like, she is dead. Yeah. They had a word for it too. It was like a not dead silence, but they all had like a word for it that it was almost like everyone was holding their breath while they just stared at her. And then she blinked or moved yeah, or something. Yeah, moved or breathed or something. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting part. And then they got it back into action. Yeah. But I like, it's like there was like some uh, just like primal fear of touching, probably of touching a corpse. Yeah. That doesn't and, happen very often. And also, what was interesting because Terry mentioned it, and I think I talked about it last time, but also Boo and Bill did too, that she didn't look hurt. She just looked perfectly pristine in the dark because her her wound was on the back of her head. Oh, yeah. So she just looked like, like a little peaceful sleeping angel. Right. So to them, they didn't even know what had happened to her. But Terry had by then already reached the back of her head and felt the wound. And I just thought that was interesting that they all reflected on just like her pale skin in the moonlight. They were like teenagers, right? They were like young. Yeah, they were 17 I mean, to 19. Yeah, I can't so, quite I mean, remember. That, that too, having to. I mean, it would, it would just be so unreal. My God. Anyways, that's all. Terry eventually sat down with Bill, Loreen, and Boo, and all of them went back through their stories, filling in the blanks of the night. Terry would even form strong bonds with both Boo and Loreen and continue to speak to them regularly. Terry met with Loreen on her own a few days after their last meeting and learned even more detailed information about Dick Dam, the hatchet man. Loreen said that sometime after the attack, Dick confronted Bill's brother and told him he knew they were spreading rumors that he was the one who attacked the girls and that they better stop or he'll, quote, shut them up. Terry confided in Loreen that she had always thought the man that did this did so because he was mad at another woman. Loreen believed that that matched up with Dick. He was definitely mad at women in general, perhaps his girlfriend Janie. With every minute of their conversation, Loreen seemed to get more and more engrossed in the idea of investigating and solving the case, and she essentially added herself into Terry's investigation. She wanted to help prove that he did it. She had an in with the locals and could start asking questions quietly. It would be less disruptive than the victim of the crime that shook the area coming back to interview a bunch of people and asking about Dick Dam. After all, according to Lorene, Dick Dam was dangerous and she believed Terry needed to be careful and watch her back. With each conversation, Terry began to suspect that 17-year-old Dick Dam was the cowboy and not Bud Godwin. Spending time researching Godwin wasn't a waste of time for Terry, though. She continued to do her part to keep him behind bars, and her involvement in that helped to bring two people into her life that would help her in her investigation— Bob and Dee Dee Coons, who lived in Portland, Oregon. The Coonses were victims' advocates who started a group called Crime Victims United. They worked through their own grief to help other families experiencing tragedies similar to the one they experienced by fighting for crime victims' rights and the implementation of mandatory sentencing laws. The Coonses had a daughter named Valerie, an aspiring filmmaker who lived in San Francisco. She went missing in November of 1980. When progress wasn't being made on their daughter's case, they chose to investigate it themselves and learned quickly that victims' rights needed to be protected. When Valerie went missing, her roommate couldn't get police to take her seriously about her concerns that Valerie was in danger. 
Eventually, when she was able to get a hold of Bob and Dee Dee, they flew to San Francisco and met with resistance from police who disregarded their worry. Then they went rogue, interviewed witnesses, hired their own investigators, and determined that there were multiple men involved, and police purposely screwed up the case because one of the suspects could provide them with information on other cases. Eventually, they later learned their daughter was abducted, drugged, held for several days, murdered, tied to a waste tub full of concrete, and thrown into a river. Her remains were found years later. Now, not only were Bob and Dee Dee incredibly valuable to Terry by sharing their experience investigating a crime so close to them, they were willing to help her keep Godwin behind bars and help her investigate Dick Dam. In fact, they were planning a trip to Central Oregon and decided to do some digging while they were in the area. Bob and Dee Dee started by speaking to witnesses like Adolph Wend, who was in the park the night of the attack. They were able to determine that he was a bit of a storyteller, and the local cops believed him to be a liar because he had given three different stories of the night of the attack. When Bob and Dee Dee talked to him, he said he saw two men in a truck or a van, and they drove over the tent repeatedly, which we know isn't true. Next up, the Coonses tackled the big guns. They drove out to Dick Dam's parents' house. Apparently, they were selling the property, so they went right up and pretended to be people interested in it. The couple chatted up Dick's mother and she showed them pictures of her family, never once saying her son's name. They did learn, however, he had been living with his wife and child in Washington. Upon Terry's request, the Coonses talked to Robin Williams, the 14-year-old girl who was at Klein Falls the night of the attack and was also the niece of Bud Godwin. She was easy for Bob and Dee Dee to find, and she seemed more than willing to talk to them about what she had seen that night. She assured them that her uncle was not in Klein Falls, nor did she ever have an inappropriate relationship with him. Lastly, before the Coonses left Central Oregon, they went to the Redmond police station. During a casual conversation between Bob and one of the officers there, they learned that the Redmond PD wasn't really involved much in the case. But behind the scenes, the officers all believed that the axe-wielding psychopath had been a local teenager named Dick Dam. Up until that point, Bob and Dee Dee had suspected that Loreen had turned Terry's head, so to speak. Until that officer mentioned Dick by name and Robin assured them that her uncle wasn't in the park, they believed all signs pointed to Godwin. But now they had a gut feeling that Loreen and Terry were onto something. So something that I love about the Coonses is Bob had this knack for just talking to police. And Josh, do you remember, did he have a background as a police officer? Or? I don't remember that, no. I feel like he was in some sort of club or something with other cops, so hmm. he had like a in to talk to them. And th she just says a couple times throughout the book how easy it was for him to like, hey, casually chat with a coffee with a cop and then get some information. Yeah, I, f I feel like he has a very disarming personality uh, but then once they get into the serious stuff with him, which maybe you'll get into later, he is is just such a a, a clear communicator about the, the problems and the reasons they're there mm. and the, the reasons that these things need to be done. I just I love Bob Coons. In 1995, 18 years since the attack, Terry once again drove herself up to Oregon, this time to stay with Boo and her parents on their farm. It wasn't long until Terry shared with Boo her new theory planted by Lorene, that the teenage Dick Dam had been the cowboy that hacked at them with the hatchet the night Boo found Terry bloody and screaming for help. Boo wasn't shocked. 
She too had heard the rumors that he was indeed the hatchet man. She went on to say that she had heard his girlfriend had been hospitalized around the same time of the around the same time as the attack because she was beaten so badly by him. She also said there was a rumor that an axe was located in the river and it had the initials DD carved into the wooden handle. Terry asked Boo if she had ever interacted with Dick and she said she had. She recalled that he was very fit but not super muscular. He was around 5'11", clean shaven, and dressed like a cowboy in his Wranglers. Then she dug her high school yearbook out of storage and flipped to one of the pages to show Terry a photo of a 14-year-old Dick Dam. While Terry was in town visiting Boo, she resumed her investigation locating and interviewing witnesses. She spoke to Robin Williams, who took her through the details she gave police and the Coonses. She mentioned how police suggested to her that her uncle had committed the crime, and she assured them he was not in the park that night. Terry asked her about Dick Dam, and while Robin didn't know much about him other than he was known for being a drunk, her husband recollected that he had been a very violent guy. Terry then went on to locate Dana Walters, one of the witnesses from Klein Falls that police interviewed early in their investigation. She found her listed phone number and called, and her father picked up the phone. Terry introduced herself as one of the women who was, quote, chopped up with an axe in Klein Falls State Park. And the man took a deep breath and said, unprompted, I might add, that everyone in Redmond thinks they know who did it and they can't prove it. Terry was eager for more information. Dana's dad was a teacher. He had had Dick Dam in one of his classes and called him a, quote, psycho. He went on to tell Terry one of the rumors that really struck me as a solid reason to consider Dick Dam as the cowboy with the hatchet. Dana's father suggested that Dick drove a truck. Everyone knew he drove a black truck, and they had all heard that the tires on his truck matched the tire treads found at the scene of the crime. Terry eventually talked to Dana, too. Dana regaled how her and a friend went swimming at the swimming hole, and there was a guy just gawking at them the whole time, someone they would describe as suspicious. It bothered them so much that they left. Terry asked Dana if she would describe that person as messy. She said the guy was, quote, scrungy. This to Terry made her believe that the people who all described the man with the red pickup truck saw the same guy, but to Terry, this person couldn't be the attacker. She specifically recalled a very tidy cowboy, and so far this other person was just a messy, kind of short guy. But Dick Dam was a neat and attractive cowboy. Josh, one of the things that I started thinking about as I'm like reading account after account of this guy in the park is like this poor guy, like he's probably a creeper, just hanging out in the park, didn't hurt anyone. But then he hears this attack happened. And like, what is he going to do? Go turn himself into police and be like, I'm the creepy guy in the park because he would have made himself the number one suspect at the time. And I just can't help but wonder if he was aware of this investigation. Which guy are you talking about? So there's the guy that all five witnesses say was like standing near a red truck or in a red truck oh. or near the campsite. And it was a guy that remained un- unidentified. Unidentified. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I just wonder, like, was that a real guy who just happened to be there and maybe stared at people a little too long? Yeah, I don't know. It kind of felt to me like it could be sort of like, um, I mean, it's been, you know, 17 years or whatever that that the mind can kind of like produce things, you know? I mean, oh, yeah. ba- based on the the effect that the crime had on a lot of people, I could see them sort of becoming a part of the story, yeah. like making themselves a little bit. 
Oh, um, definitely. Especially with Adolf. He yeah, was like, yes. I, he had to be involved. That's who I thought you were talking about. No, first. no. So I yeah. just mean, I'm as I'm reading oh, through yeah. all these people describing a guy that seems very similar, I'm just imagining him in the car the next day listening to the radio, hearing about the attack and going, oh, shit. I shouldn't go in there. <laughs> like, yeah, I like don't he know. could turn himself in to be like, hey, I just want to clarify. Yeah, like, but don't then... look for that guy because I'm him, but also I didn't kill them. And I don't know if ever, anyone ever like vocalized about right. the guy they saw, but I just picture him being like torn on whether or not he should go in. And maybe finding out for the first time that he's a creep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or that people see him as one. Yeah, Which totally. is never fun. No, I mean, do you know that from personal experience? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next on Terry's radar was the story-spinning boy named Adolf Wind, who contacted the police on three separate occasions and told them three different stories. All of his stories had components of seeing either one man or two men with a red truck and a white camper near the tent. But he also told police about a guy named Terry Wilson, who showed him a small collapsible hatchet claiming it was related to the case, and he later turned it over to police. Terry formed the goal to get to the bottom of this hatchet rumor. She pulled up the police report that mentioned it, quote, at 12.05 a.m. 626.77, contact was made with Terry Dean Wilson. Wilson confirmed that he had found the hatchet while swimming in the river during the afternoon of June 23, 1977. He reported that he was alone diving off the Highway 126 bridge when he found the hatchet approximately 10 to 15 feet upstream from the bridge. The blade was stained when he found the small axe. He later cleaned it at home with boiling water. The hatchet was later shown to Terry Gents at the hospital. She was certain the instrument was not the same one she had glimpsed during the assault. This was not even close to the story Adolf had mentioned to Bob and Dee Dee when they were in town interviewing him. Now that Terry was able to sit down with him herself, she learned that his story did vary from hers quite a bit. He claimed to know that the perpetrator drove over the tent three times because he watched on from a higher vantage point. According to him, he was sitting on a ridge with his friends drinking beer when they heard the squealing or peeling out of a vehicle. They looked down and saw a dark van drive over the tent three times and then a man got out of the van at least once. This conflicted with the police report where he described the vehicle as a red pickup and he never mentioned seeing the attack. When she asked him about the hatchet Terry Wilson found, he said he didn't really remember it being a hatchet, but a baseball bat. Most of the details of Adolph's story were different from Terry's, so she told him her version and he outwardly disagreed with her. And I think that is so funny. You're literally talking to the person it happened to. And, and you're like, and you're like, no, um, actually, as a man, let me tell you what I that's actually not saw. what I saw. <laughs> it's just like kind of funny. Yeah. Ridiculous. Terry was ready to talk to Adolf's sister Kathy next, but by then, her updates to Bob and Dee Dee grew too exciting to not witness in person. They were in town within a matter of hours to join her for her next interview. They explained to Kathy they were interested in deciphering what stories were real and which ones were rumors. Kathy herself seemed to question the stories her brother told. He had been known to lie quite often. In fact, when Terry was visiting him, he had told her the story about his wife dying after getting hit by a drunk driver and that he had kids. Neither of these stories was true. So he just blatantly lies regularly. Kathy had also heard the moniker Dick Dam the Hatchet Man. She went on to say that she had heard two different rumors. 
One was that the hatchet was thrown in the river, and the other was that Dick kept it and even showed it off to a few people. Terry checked back in with the detectives who formerly worked on the case. Both Detective Cooley and Detective Durr only remembered one suspect, Bud Godwin. They had no recollection of Dick Dam. How was it that almost everyone they talked to in the town was aware that Dick had done this crime, but the two detectives working on the case didn't? Eventually, Terry's relationship with Lorraine helped her get on the phone with someone she had been patiently waiting to talk to, Janie, Dick Dam's ex-girlfriend. Janie agreed to meet with Terry, and when she arrived, she announced that the truck she was driving was the same make and model as the one her old boyfriend used to drive, a 1974 Ford pickup. And something I don't actually put in this script, but I found very interesting, is that at one point, Terry actually laid underneath her truck to kind of like jog her memory and be like, yeah, this was the height of the vehicle. Can you imagine? That's hardcore. That reminds me of the girl in the box case where the people were like trying on the head box because the the prosecutor was to like kind of put herself Mm -hmm. in the victim's shoes. I, I just can't imagine like coming face to face with your trauma like that. I mean, that's pretty cool. But side note that she did that. (laughs) (laughs) Over her past conversations, people had referred to this truck differently. One person claimed it was black. Another person said it was silver and blue. Janie told her it looked just like the blue one she drove, but it was two different shades of blue and it had silver trim. Terry had her entourage with her. Boo, Dee Dee, and Bob, as well as a reporter she met while gathering the troops to block Bud Godwin from getting parole the last time. Janie was more than happy to talk about her time with Dick. He was known as a bad boy, but she had loved him. He liked to wear long-sleeved cowboy shirts that were custom-made by his mother, and he often wore Lee jeans. Mommy, will you make me my special cowboy shirt? I know, and he lived with his parents a long time very like doted upon cute she was only 15 when she started dating dick and didn't have much self-esteem and that's something i think appealed to him because he made sure to keep it like that she took her captive audience back to the day dick assaulted her and pushed her into the pond The night before, she had been with Dick and he dropped her off at her home before 11 p.m. Reminder, this is the night of the attack. So he was with her, dropped her off at 11 p.m., and then he would have been alone. The next morning, she heard about the Klein Falls attack on the radio. She went to work and at around lunchtime on the ranch, Dick pulled up in his truck and it was clear that he was drunk off vodka. She found the half-full bottle in his truck. As she pulled it out to dump the rest of the vodka, she noticed that his toolbox on his truck was missing. She saw it as recently as the night before. Then Dick started screaming at her because one of his friends told him that she had thrown out the rest of his vodka. He chased after her and started hitting her. Then he started spitting out his Copenhagen chew on her. He kicked her a few times and she finally got up to get away and attempted to kick him in the crotch. This only made him angrier. She tried to jump into the pond to swim to the other side, but he chased after her and shouted, I'm going to kill you, you bitch. He caught up to her, pushed her head under, 
and the other teenagers just watched on until one young girl, about 14 years old, picked up a rock and threatened to hit him over the head with it. Shortly after that, the ranch owner arrived, pulled Dick off of her, and Janie was put in a car that drove away while Dick chased after her, screaming that he loved her, he loved her, and then he was eventually taken to jail. I think, too, there was, they said that all the other kids that were there, too, also jumped onto that car that was going away like they were escaping like an Independence Day fireball or something. I don't remember that, but that yeah. sounds about right. Like, they were like, everyone, everyone was, was freaking out. Everyone yeah. was scared of him, and yes. he's just like, attacking his girlfriend in front of you that's that's bold that's yeah if bold. you're willing whatever you're willing to do in front of people it's way worse behind closed oh, doors oh yeah so, like you can't even imagine Janie confirmed that dick had a hatchet and he usually kept it in the toolbox in the back of his truck the box which spanned the width of his entire truck was wooden and painted white the toolbox had always been there until that day and then Janie never saw it again Terry asked her to describe the hatchet, and she said that it had a wooden handle with a metal blade on one side. On the handle were two Ds that had been carved into the wood. And this is something that Dick did with a lot of his belongings. So he would either like etch it into metal or wood, but it was on like his belt buckle, his hatchet, his other tools. So, so was... you knew he was a cool guy. <laughs> I mean, I just think it really establishes like that was his thing. Yeah. Um, but I also think stepping back for a moment. That could fuel the rumors of, oh, a hatchet was found. Oh, well, it had the DD in it because everyone knows he does that, you know? Yeah. Terry asked Janie about what Lorene had said, that Dick had grabbed her and said, quote, we got to get out of here. You don't know what I've done. Janie said that was not the case. He was mad about the vodka. He did not say anything Lorene remembered, but he was yelling. So maybe Lorene just, you know, it's been over a decade she wants this guy to be the bad guy. Maybe it's kind of morphed into something else. The next bit of information from Janie was regarding the tires Dick had on his truck. She was curious after hearing about what happened at Klein Falls. So her and some friends went there to go check out the tire tracks left at the crime scene. She believed they were his. He had mismatched tires on the front of his truck, and that was something she used to tease him about. Now, I found this part of the book particularly interesting because Janie describes herself to Terry as, quote, someone who has a knack for tracking tires like other people track footprints. And that got their attention. Like this is someone that would have really valuable information for you. She would totally remember what the tracks looked like and what his tires looked like if it was that important to her. She was very adamant that those tire tracks were his and that she was so adamant that her and her mom actually went to the police station to talk to them about that. And really, it just kind of got disregarded. After the incident that summer, Janie avoided Dick for the most part. But about a year later, he found his way back into her life. She had witnessed him do terrible things while they were together. He kicked her dog. He was mean to her family's cats. He even forced her to watch one of her cows as it was slaughtered, something he knew made her uncomfortable. She knew he enjoyed watching those terrible things happen and watching her witness them. Eventually, she did leave him. And then what did he do? He spread rumors about how she not only slept with the entire football team, but with dogs as well. So great guy. Mm -hmm. 
Janie eventually moved to Portland and got married to one of Dick's friends. And so she did see him after moving away because when Dick got married, he brought his new wife, Ruby, to go meet her and her husband. And when they were there, she remembers seeing bruises on Ruby and being like, oh, he still abuses the women he's with. How odd. I know. It's a very small town, right? You're like, let's go visit my ex-girlfriend and her new husband I and mean, I'll show off my wife. Maybe he changed how he interacted with her when he was with someone new. Because it seems like a lot of people in this town, like, break up but are still in the same circles. Uh, yeah, I guess. That, that to me doesn't seem odd as much as uh, a type of control. Scary. Yeah, like, he's doing definitely. it on purpose. Like, look, now I'm, I'm still, still in your life. I'm well, still he's... in your life and I'm hurting someone else and yep. you can't do anything about yeah. it. Yep. Terry learned from Janie's father, Bart, that the day Dick had assaulted Janie on the ranch, he was detained by police but never arrested. They kept him in the Prineville jail for the weekend, but released him to his father's boss. Her parents were pissed. So they called their attorney and basically learned that there wasn't anything the police could do because he was under 18. However, if he had killed her, then they would have been able to arrest him. So basically, the only thing they could do to hold any accountability against him was that the parents had to pay for Janie's medical bills. So like Dick's family ended up sending them a check. And I just think that's so horrible. I can't even imagine as a parent, like seeing your daughter come home, having to go to the hospital for yeah. her injuries. Yeah. And they won't do a thing. In 1995, Terry was in contact with a current detective named Fredrickson at the Oregon State Police. He had found notebooks used by Detective Durr and Cooley when they were originally working on the case. He said that there were hand-drawn photos in the notebooks that show that the tire treads were not consistent with the ones Janie described as matching Dick's car. He also told Terry that he had followed up with Dick Dam, who had moved to Washington, and he said Dick agreed to take a polygraph test to clear himself of all these rumors that keep following him around. Now, he took that test, but the results were inconclusive because he was not only drinking, but he was taking muscle relaxers. Let's discuss these tire tracks. Go take a look at our latest blog up on our website. And Alicia, I have the photo here for you to see. I find it very funny that this new detective is dismissing Janie because how can you tell anything from this drawing? Yeah. Like it's like it's lines. six lines. Two, the inner four are squiggly and the outer two are straight. That's the tire. Track. It looks more like someone was counting days or something. Just like. Like a tally Scra mark. Yeah, a tally mark. Or You're drawing bacon. Yeah. Or bacon, yeah. Like it's, I can't believe that he's like, yep, that's proof. That's proof. They did their, so I think what happened was Janie and her mom go to police. They talk about the tire treads. He looks at his notes and is like, nope. <laughs> wow. So that way it didn't make the police report because it wasn't in there. Wow. Mind boggling is my my favorite tagline. That's what that is. Now, along with the drawing, there were a few notes and they said, quote, Assault vehicle had two bald tires, six inch width and two tires back bald possible and two tires have tread right front has four grooves better tread than other. Now, those aren't great, but that does kind of match what Janie had said. They were mismatched tires, meaning some were bald, some had treads. They may have been different brands and maybe just maybe they did look at Dick's truck. Because there were rumors that he had swapped the placement of the tires right after the attack. So what if they were looking for bald tires in specific locations and just didn't consider the fact that he could have changed them around? And I think that's 
insane that a detective wouldn't consider that. But I mean, they weren't looking very hard for whoever committed this crime. So there you go. Terry did eventually stumble on evidence that Dick Dam had been investigated. She found an old article from the Bend Bulletin from June 27, 1974. In it, it said that Detective Cooley had, quote, plans to talk to a 17-year-old youth charged Friday with assault in connection with a beating incident involving his girlfriend, but doesn't expect to tie the youth to the Kleinfalls attack. The youth was charged by Deschutes County Sheriff's deputies and detained over the weekend at Prineville City Jail. Dick Dam eventually took a second polygraph test, the deceptive results of which made police wonder if Terry was right all along. When confronted that his results were deceptive, he acted oddly or perhaps guilty, crying, saying things like, not a day goes by that I don't think about this, and even reaching for the hand of the administrator, Fred Ackham. Fred told police and Terry that he was sure Dick Dam did it. The way he talked, cried, reached for him, he had all the telltale signs. But unfortunately, that wasn't proof. What they needed was an admission. Terry and Fred plotted ways they might coax Dick into giving one. Perhaps a recording of Terry's voice would get to him. Unfortunately, he never did admit guilt, at least not to anyone who could arrest him. The state police determined that the case would be taken on by Sergeant Marlon Hine. It was 18 years later, so while the case could not result in an arrest and prosecution, it could help the statute of limitations, and that it did. Eventually, the statute of limitations for attempted murder went from three years to not having a limit. I am glad to hear that because it's so upsetting, the idea of because someone is fighting or someone got lucky or someone got help soon enough, like, oh, sorry, that doesn't count. It's not as serious. It's I, like I never understand what? a statute of limitations on a crime in general. I mean, I guess some things are easier to explain to me than others. But on murder and yeah. attempted murder, yeah, that is crazy. Like, what if someone was in a coma for 10 years yeah. and woke or, up <laughs> or at least have degrees? Like if a teenager throws a rock over an overpass that is attempted murder because you could have killed someone, but indirectly. This, you drove over two people and you took an, a hatchet to them. And yeah. Like you intended you to kill tried them. You to kill them. Yeah. They're lucky to be alive I because was, of their own fight. I was unaware of that. So I know right now we don't have a statute of limitation on murder or attempted murder. But when I read this book, I'm like, I'm sorry, three years? Because right now we have a three years on assault. Yeah. So on an assault, there is a statute of limitations. But this is someone violently trying to kill someone. Yeah, like the most, one of the most horrific ways you could imagine, yeah. Shit eventually got real. Police wanted Dick to take a third polygraph, one where they were sure he wasn't on drugs or alcohol. The day after he got this notification, there was a phone call made to police threatening them that if another police officer went on damn property, they would be shot. This forced the sergeant to put out an officer safety alert to ensure all officers used extreme caution if they ran into Dick Dam. And of course, when the officer arrived to pick him up for his third polygraph, he wasn't there. He was avoiding them. Big shock. Can you do that? Can you tell the cops? If you come to my house, I'll shoot you. I know. Isn't that still that a crime? Seems like you're warning weird. them that you're going to be defending your property. I don't really know the, how that works. Yikes. With Boo at her side, Terry was able to speak with Ruby, Dick's ex-wife. 
The pair had to travel to Tri-Cities, Washington to find her. And she was suspicious at first, but she eventually talked to them and even grew a strong bond with Terry. She explained that she had married Dick in 1982. He was a drinker and had a temper. She had heard the rumors that he had been the one with the hatchet in 1977. In fact, she was out on a date with him at a bar when a girl pulled her into the bathroom to tell her about it just to make sure that she knew the type of guy she was with. Right. But by then she knew she was already pregnant. So she was worried about leaving him. She recalled how he once told her about when he was 17, he was taken to jail for beating up his girlfriend, but he never admitted to the attack at Klein Falls, but he did talk about it. He told her about how his tires were matched to the tire marks, but he had actually sold those tires to someone and that guy must have been the one that did it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, likely tale. Ruby told Terry that Dick had been investigated by the police. She believed he did it, but she was scared for her life. She said Anything could have thrown this man into a violent rage. When he got mad, he made her dig her own grave in the backyard. Once it was dug, he would fill it up with dirt and they would go back inside. And she claimed this was a regular occurrence and that he made her do this between 15 to 20 times over the course of their relationship. And that wasn't even the worst part. She wasn't allowed to have friends or even leave her house. She described how he raped her repeatedly, locked her out in the cold wearing just a thin nightgown. He spit his Copenhagen all over her, broke many of her bones, her arms, her nose, her ribs, and even her eardrum. He held guns to her and threatened her regularly. He would even force her into a crawl space in her closet and keep her locked in with no food or water. Ruby eventually got away from him in 1987, but she still had to hear from him because they had a daughter together. He would eventually begin being a monster to his daughter, which was the final straw for Ruby, and accompanied by Terry, she eventually got a restraining order against him. Another woman who lived not far from Ruby, her name was Kelly, dated Dick when she was at her lowest in life. She had lost custody of her two children and then had a third, which ended up dying mysteriously. She was accused of causing the baby's death, but the autopsy couldn't prove the cause of death, but that didn't stop the rumors. Not long after that, she went out and ended up meeting Dick. He love-bombed her like he did all the women that he dated, but before long, his personality changed. Her experience was as frightening as Ruby's. Dick killed her animals. He would kill one, comfort her, and then he would do it again. On one occasion, he abused her dog, and then he told her that one day he was going to take the dog out and use it for target practice for his gun. Then one day, the dog was gone. Other pets like her bird, gophers, and their cat all ended up dead. Like the women before her, he often spit his chew on her. He stole her jewelry and money to pay for drugs. But she stayed with him, and eventually he told her about the Klein Falls rumors. She herself was a victim of vicious rumors, so she didn't necessarily believe them, especially because he said the suspect was caught. One day, the pair got into a knockdown, dragout brawl that ended up requiring police, and eventually Kelly filed a restraining order. Being who he is, Dick disregarded the order and broke into her house and hid in the garage. The police eventually found him hiding there and arrested him. But, of course, at his trial, he was acquitted. Why? Because she had taken him back so many times that they didn't believe her this time. Can you believe that? And it's always and it's the same experts that see 
women leaving the re- abusive relationships, getting murdered. Yeah, women they should know by now. trying to leave and getting hurt. Women begging for help and then getting hurt. Like, they're the ones that see it more than anyone. Ah. <sighs> In 1995, Dick Dam was arrested for two counts of assault four committed against his latest girlfriend. Per usual, the charges didn't go anywhere serious. There was a plea agreement and the charges were reduced to menacing or what we call harassment, which meant he would get 24 months of supervised probation and 15 days in jail. Now, it did require him to go to rehab, pass anger management classes and do 120 days of community service. And if he didn't do all that, he could trade it in for three months in jail. In 1996, Terry learned that the DA from Deschutes County had arranged that plea deal, knowing this man had a history of domestic assault and some serious allegations, or I suppose rumors, of what he did in 1977. Back in 1995, Terry got a clue from one of Dick's co-workers that it might behoove her to talk to his ex-wife's boyfriend. The man had made a new home in prison, but at her wit's end and armed with Bob and Dee Dee, she went to the prison in 1996 to talk to him. Robert Lee was in jail on drug charges. He had dated Ruby right after she got away from Dick. When the Coonses and Terry visited him, he told them that Dick had told Ruby that he was the attacker in Klein Falls. To Terry, this was the truth. This man had no reason to tell her this. He wasn't going to get out of jail earlier. He had no ties to Ruby anymore. Like, why would he bother? But let's be honest. I think at this point she had already made up her mind that Dick had done it. And just hearing it from Robert was the icing on the cake. Robert went on to say that Dick threatened Ruby with the very hatchet used in the attack, claiming to her that he kept it in his car where he could always reach it. He also said that Dick had admitted to changing his tires and fixing up his truck after the attack. Others had confirmed that Dick had a habit of keeping the hatchet in his vehicle, one of which was a man named Rex that worked with him back in the summer of 1977. He described that Dick often used that hatchet to clear brush out of the wilderness. The way he described it matched how Terry remembered it, a light wood axe handle, small like a Boy Scout's 20-inch axe. The evidence against Dick was piling up. It seemed everyone Terry spoke to viewed Dick the same, a violent person who they were sure committed the Klein Falls axe attack. And finally, in the fall of 1996, Dick was arrested and it seemed like this time it was going to stick. Dick Dam had been arrested for the kidnapping of his hunting partner, 18-year-old Timothy Bidwell. He had also fired gunshots at him, he was intoxicated, and he held the gun threateningly at Timothy's chest. One of my favorite parts of this book was how Terry got herself ready for Dick's court date for this case. She wrote the following, quote, With a red lipstick pencil, I filled in the white scar that wrapped around my left forearm and held my work in front of the looking glass. Satisfied that it resembled the Frankenstein gash once again, I left the bathroom. I was wearing jeans, a denim shirt, and cowboy boots because I wanted Dick to perceive me, in this, his very first view of his stalker, as the Central Oregon kind of gal. Not some city slicker, but someone he could identify with, in case at some future point in time he surrendered to me a straight confession. As I paced toward the courtroom, my mind filled with Nancy Sinatra's voice, one of these days these boots are going to walk all over you. I just loved that. Yeah, that's great. She wrote about feeling his eyes on her, so she reached her arm around the back of Boo's chair so that his eyes 
could see her bright red scar. She didn't look at him, but Boo confirmed he was looking at her. And I think that may have been the moment she got that piece of her back that she had lost the night of the attack. She described a, quote, warm thrill. And I like to think that was that soul like climbing back in. Mm. The trial lasted two days and the jury listened while Tim described his terrifying experience. It only took them one hour to deliberate and they came back with not guilty of kidnapping, (gasps) guilty of the unlawful use of a dangerous weapon, guilty of coercion. The judge agreed with the DA's request to remand Dam to jail until his sentencing because he was a flight risk. Dick Dam had been arrested a total of 19 times. Each time he somehow got out of the charges or out of serious repercussions. This time he wasn't getting out of it, but he wasn't going to go to jail for life either. He got five years in prison for what he did to Timothy. And today he's out, he's free, but just having him get a felony conviction was enough for Terry. Like that made her happy. She felt complete. And even though the law has changed, I'm assuming it's, it's not retroactive. It's not. So that was okay. the one caveat. It It's like only moving forward. So other people won't experience what she went through. Right. But they couldn't go back and, and prosecute him. And of course, I learned by looking up, doing a background check this morning, he has since had new charges. He no was way. arrested on harassment, strangulation and a DUI. But I don't know if he went to jail for any of those things because he's still he's in Redmond, Oregon, guys. Just a heads up. The strangulation makes me think of when I uh, spoke to the psychologist uh, in the Maintain Dignity mm-hmm. episode and how she's like for her, that is like the ultimate red flag. Yeah. Because grabbing someone by the throat is like you're willing to take their it's lives. It's so easy to kill someone like that on yeah. accident. Yeah. So it's like, why would you even like consider that? That's yeah. scary. And it's this. He doesn't he can't control himself. Yeah. He's just like angry and violent. That's just who he is. I asked earlier, what was the harm in closing this case forever? And I think after reading this book, it became obvious that the police in the area were overwhelmed when the attack occurred and they did not handle the case well. There were two other major cases around the time of the Kleinfalls attack. The murder of Kay Turner, the jogger who Godwin was once accused of killing, that ended up being a huge case where multiple people got arrested. It did eventually get solved, and I will cover that in another episode. Um, There was also the 1980 still unsolved case of Mary Jo Templeton, a woman whose body parts were discovered floating in Muir Pond, a popular spot in downtown Bend. And an easy close with a person already behind bars, Godwin, was perfect for them. What would it matter? It's not like they could have pursued the attempted murder in court. But of course, it did matter. Dozens of lives were touched by this case. Terry set out to investigate her own case and write a book about her investigation and how she discovered her own would-be murderer. And what she ended up doing was writing this beautiful story about how people are affected by and connected through tragedy and trauma. She was constantly surprised and taken with the alternative versions of the story as people described it from their own perspective, from how Bill and Boo saw her in the park that night to Kathy eagerly waiting for her traveling companions after just one day apart and how she collapsed when police told her that the girls she had been traveling with were attacked. Mark, her husband, feeling responsible for not protecting these young women he had bonded with 
to the librarian in Bend who told Terry she didn't even live in Oregon when it happened, but the story of the attack reached her in New York and she was enthralled with it to the point where she thought about it every day and eventually ended up moving to Bend. Ugh. I think that was a coincidence. But the, the mm. fact of the matter is the entire community was impacted by this and the people who were directly impacted by this even more so. There were, of course, many trauma bonds between the women, dick damn hurt, relationships that went beyond friendship that completely changed their lives. Like we said last week, this book was incredibly detailed and a little bit long. But if you find yourself interested in this case, I highly suggest getting yourself a copy of Strange Piece of Paradise because there is so much more to the story that I could not fit in two episodes. And I joked about making it like an entire season, but we weren't about to do that. Okay. That was a long one. But Josh, I'm so interested to hear the things that you want to talk about. Tell me, do you have points? When Terry got her her uh, case file from the hospital, I believe she was going through it with I think one of the nurses that had that attended to her when she was young, or when it happened, and um, reading about what happened because she'd been I guess struck in the face and her nose I think was broken. It was the doctor went in, took out some you know bone, realigned it, and actually changed the shape of her nose, which was something Terry didn't realize until she was talking about that. She's yeah. like, oh yeah, my I used to have kind of a pug nose, kind of flat, kind of wide. If you look at the picture of her, like her author's photo, you can see that it's I mean it's a it's perfect a perfect nose, nose and it's mm -hmm. I mean very much like a perfect like you know, nose job nose. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I, I think um, the note was something like nose surgery or something. There was a note in the file and she looked into it. Terry found out that she that the nose she had was that doctor's particular nose. And so the other the three nurses that tended to her eventually all had the same nose job too. So they all had like <laughs> they all had like matching noses. Yeah. That's one of the parts where Josh said last week the book is kind of funny. There are funny parts and the only the, the only other thing that kind of strikes me is when she was in the hospital, uh, like you were talking about Terry getting another perspective from the, the people that were around her at that time. And they talked about Terry just laying in bed before I think before maybe she was conscious or something that she would just moan this awful moan mm. and there was a um I think one of the police inspectors who talked to her and also talked about this moan that people have when they're dying oh god and that it's that's what it sounds like and I don't remember that oh yeah like a death moan a death moan that he heard I think he was in Korea or something like that oh the god Korean War, and he he said those are the the sounds I heard then I think he was a medic and he's and then PTSD. he yeah and then he stops he's talking to Terry he stops and he says I've never told my wife that oh my god so she has like this ability to really draw she does. out of people what yeah I don't think just anybody could have written this book like no. she she bonded with nearly every person she met like I honestly thought I was gonna find out that she talked to Dick Dam because like she could talk to anybody yeah it's really amazing and when you look at her photo like I don't get that vibe from just a, a shot because she's very like I feel like a little intimidating looking you know I I do when I see there's there's one photo of her I think it might be at the end of the book and it's her standing against I think the welcome to Oregon side. oh yeah yeah and she's wearing all black she has cut out like a cut off black t-shirt kind of like uh I would say bicycle pants mm -hmm. style and like black sneakers and she's got black sun sunglasses on and uh very central Oregon. -esque. I see. I just see it. I can see the that that the, the strength she's like already yeah. growing there, and she's not intimidating. But I I don't know. 
I think she's a powerful person. She is. And I think a lot of people knew that right away because she'd start. First of all, she'd be like, yes, I'm the girl that got hacked in the part. And people like know that story and are amazed that somebody would survive and be a whole person. So I think that kind of did her a favor with that, too, going around and talking to all these people. And also you're talking to someone that even though you've never met them, if you were in that town and that story was so prevalent, it's like you probably know everything about them in a weird way. Yeah. Like, oh, these girls were on their bikes and they were from these schools and she had grown up at this point. You know, so it's like almost like a celebrity where you're like, oh, yeah. I already know you. So I feel comfortable because I know like really intense details about your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kathy, one of the nurses who tended to Terry, said that, said basically, you know, I became you. I became Avra mm -hmm. because they were so young. Yeah. And they said it was like their sister coming in. Yeah, there's the, the connections are were just so so profound in this book. I also got a kick out of her reading the notes from the nurse about what she was like in, in the Oh hospital. yeah, that she was a total asshole. Difficult yeah. asshole. So difficult. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really important for people to see, but at the same time when you're in pain, like can you really control that? Well, but it also brings some realness to it instead of like, oh, she lit up the room. She with was her a little smile. angel. Like, yeah. yeah. It's instead like, no, like, she was an asshole. She is very difficult. She asked four to five times a day of XYZ. It's just really funny to me. Um, so I did want to talk about a couple of parts of the book. There, this is an emotional book. It's funny. Um, but there I cried twice, rereading, not even the first time. But I wanted to share two of the thoughts. So I mentioned. Kathy, um, in the ending, I mentioned how Kathy like found out from police that the girls were attacked and she like collapsed. But for some perspective of Kathy, her and, and her husband, Mark, rode on to Redmond and they passed Klein Falls Park and they saw it was a day use only. So they went and got dinner at a Mexican restaurant and they sat there and they waited, assuming the girls were going to ride their bikes by because they wouldn't want to stay there. And so they waited and they waited and they gave up and they ended up staying at this fairgrounds nearby. And um, she said she constantly was thinking about them. And she had some guilt because looking back in her, she kept a diary, like a road diary that she ended up sharing with Terry. She had wrote about how, you know, they were impatient with the girls and wanted to separate. So I think she had some guilt. Um, but what's sad is a year later, Mark and Kathy divorced. Um, she she actually, I think, moved to Oregon. He ended up dying while he was home alone eating food. He choked. And it was so sad. And then Terry reaches out to Kathy and they like rebond. And I, I'm going to cry right now. It was just so sad, <laughs> like how everyone's affected. And, and, you know, I don't know, maybe they would have been together if that tragedy didn't happen. Yeah. That like being involved in it changed everyone's path. Mm hmm. Yeah. Also, get a de-choker at home, everybody. I know, I know, brands. I need to get one. That is an unlocked fear for me now because I did almost choke at work when everyone was out of the office at lunch and I was in the office and I'm like, oh my God, this is how I'm going to die and this is horrible. Yeah. So get one. Um, I was also struck by Martha Godwin. So that is the ex-wife of Bud Godwin. She grew up with him. They like had an official courting, got married, didn't even kiss until they were married he was adamant about not wanting children. And then one day they saw a friend with kids and he changed his mind. Um, and, you know, he was caught molesting their daughter. So he went to prison and then the kids were taken from her, which is unfair. I think like he went to prison, wasn't the enemy kind of gone now. 
Um, but she spent all these years like making money, going to school. She became a nurse. She finally went back to court and got her kids back. And the judge even said, uh, I haven't seen someone work this hard to get their kids back. And I just I don't know. I wanted to talk about that because it just was inspiring, but heartbreaking. And I just feel so sad for those um, victims of abuse out there who like are stuck with the mess afterwards, you know? I want that makes me wonder if perhaps there was uh, a neglect, maybe uh, like something like that, where like because the household was so unsafe and she was still yeah, there. Yeah, you're right. Even, There's probably more to it. Even removing the circumstances of trying to, you know, empathize with being in an abusive relationship like that. But perhaps there was just some other reasoning for that. But um, but good for her. Yeah. It was like one of those little heartstring tug moments. Again, gotta love how flippant people are with creating other lives. That's also great. Oh, look, a child. Okay. I Let's feel, have one. I think, too, by the by the end of the book, at least, I think Bob Coons had died as well, right? Yeah, he passed away, and, and Dee Dee has since passed as well. Yeah. I think I can't remember the exact years. He passed in, like, 2006 or something. He was recognized, I, I believe, as being one of the pioneers of... Uh, victim victims right. advocacy yeah yeah, yeah right. he so was like yeah so yeah, the, yeah an amazing man there I think it's on their website I believe which will be in our sources you can like see pictures of him and Dee Dee and kind of read about their life their life work their story is very interesting it's too much to add into this already robust episode but it's you know possible patreon episode there it, I really like the way that Bob laid everything out for the police you know he and when he when he was just talking about it from the heart he said that that a, a crime like this you know causes a, a wound in the community mm. and if we don't address it if we don't put it to bed it just it just stays there it's something that has to be healed that's right so i didn't really talk about that how they finally had enough evidence to go to the state police and determine that they would pursue this as a case even though they couldn't close it and he made that point and i think it was kind of a bookend to another person who at the trial of Dick Dam had said like the community needed this. I think she worked for like the Redmond County or something. Oh yeah. Um, but I just thought, oh, what a nice bookend of like, yes, that is so, so valid. I don't think a lot of people think about that. These big cases that impact so many people really do affect the entire community. I guess my final thoughts about it are, are the things that really touched me the most is when several times throughout the book, several characters will, she said, uh, Terry refers to them as, as mental drifts, where she'll start thinking about someone and that person will contact them, come into their life or her life, or, or in some way provide some information. It happens mm. multiple times throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And so I have a couple of quotes that I wanted to read about that stuff that I just really thought was beautiful. Cool. Oh, this is when she's talking to the, the, the third of the three nurses that tended to her when she was in the hospital, um, Jane. Terry said, quote, perhaps I had reached the end of the line in coming to see my own injuries, my own arm as an emblem of suffering, an object of contemplation. What astounded me was that this woman, so like me, had made a journey of understanding as I had done, which had brought her to an unshakable belief that human nature included souls such as the one who had made these cuts. She changed her beliefs because of me. My body, my personal history had been her object lesson. Oh, my tears come to my eyes. I, it's just beautiful. I think, yeah, it, it just so profoundly affected everyone who even touched it. I like the thought of that. Yeah. I like the idea of us all having some sort of 
unseen connection that, 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 that binds us all. Yeah. And I, one of the things I had considered when I was writing this is like describing it almost like a spider web, like how every area kind of touches and interacts. And there were so many, we talked last week a little bit. I mentioned synchronicities. There were more like when Terry went back in 1992 and then she spoke to Kathy later. She learned Kathy went back in 1992. Oh yeah. Same year. Yeah. Same year. They both went back to the area to look at Klein Falls. And I just thought, whoa, like, that's crazy. They could have gone together. And, yeah. and then that, I think there's a part two where Terry, yeah, Terry and Loreen, who haven't seen each other for like, I don't know, a year and a half or something, just ran into each other at a, at a restaurant somewhere. Yeah, she was work. Uh, Loreen was working at a restaurant and they just picked up where they left off. Yeah. She like went up, hugged her and they're like, so here's what I've learned. Yeah. It's, I wonder if it's something about the ex- how extreme the 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 crime and all the all the aftermath of that that just sort of creates that sort of I mean it's a trauma bond but it's there's it's something like, psychic almost with it, fast, it. Some fast of, forwards you to like a, yeah beyond that friendship that I was talking about where it's like you're so connect your souls well, are connected. very yeah. intimate and that there would be a lot of things that they would that would be unsaid between them that yeah. they would both know I think yeah, yeah but it's like if you've touched my blood and you saw my brain matter mm-hmm. and you sewed my arm back together and you fixed my broken face like and you're all connected to that on different levels. Like that's very intimate mm. in that way. You know, I, I really loved how much Boo was that same protector uh, as she was when she when they saved Terry back then. Yeah, too, that she always always provided that for her. I really I really found that to be the most beautiful relationship in the whole it book. Was I just so loved good. it. I love Boo. She's just just the greatest. I I would love to have someone like Boo on my side if I needed yeah. something like that. She was awesome. I also thought it was interesting. I can't remember exactly how she said it, but Ruby, too, felt like she she spoke to them both. I would think it was Boo and Terry and was like, I just feel such a connection with you yeah. guys. Like she was so appreciative that they came in her life and it almost, you know, she could have said no to interviewing with them. She wanted to get out of that. She didn't want to talk about Dick Dam anymore. Yeah. So I just thought it was really beautiful how this like horrible tragedy brought these amazing relationships together yeah and it's like well they the the two of them ruby and terry at least prevailed against him oh yeah 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 um on the on the other side on the less deep side there was something really funny that i i literally laughed out loud when i read this so i wanted to share it when terry met met with the pen hollows at their house she like goes back to sisters and apparently is just flying down the road and it is a speed trap sisters you will get pulled over for speeding so she gets pulled over and the officer is like you're speeding in a school zone and she's like well i was chopped up with an axe on this road 17 (laughs) years ago and now i'm here investigating it by myself just like hoping that catching him off guard is gonna throw him in yeah and he goes I hear stories like that all the time, and I don't know if I can believe you, so you're getting a ticket. Oh, my God. And she's like, I wish you had been this effective at catching the psychopath that chopped me up. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes, psychopaths are a lot harder to find, and he gives her the ticket for $135. I just thought it was so funny. Like, the way she writes is just back and forth between meaningful and deep and hilarious and, like, there's no self-preservation. She lays it out on the table and it's just, it, it's beautiful. You guys should read it. The end of that story is that she gets a refund for that yeah. ticket. Oh. <laughs> she writes them and explains it and they're like, oh yeah, you're Terry Jens. We're not going to make you pay. Yeah, I love that. That's funny. But I just thought that was really cute. Like she really holds nothing back. It sounds like she's found a good balance of taking what happened seriously and respecting, like in a sacred way, respecting all the people that were involved mm. in all the connections while also walking away with 
life is short and you can't take it seriously. So find humor in even the little things. Yeah. Like a like a good balance of both of those. And I think that's just who she is. I think she's a little bit sarcastic. And that just comes through, which I think makes, and you know, that aside, you guys should know she is a screenwriter for a living. So, like, she knows <laughs> what she's doing. Book. It's a good book. Um, yeah, she, I was quite taken with it. Like, I would love to meet her at some point. Yeah, me too. Or hear her speak about her experience. Once again, if you're interested in finding out even more details and to experience Terry Jentz's uh, incredible writing, it's called Strange Piece of Paradise. And it's a big old book, but it was totally worth it. And I loved it. Thank you, Terry. Fuck you, dick. (laughs) Allegedly. Klein Falls Axe Attack Part 2. I'm sorry, it's what now? Nailed it. (laughs) Starting their summer cycling trip across the trans... Oh, this is not going to bode well. I'm already overwhelmed. Okay. Perfect. Fled into the desert that night. Nope. Fuck you, Emily. I need a mirror right here that I can talk to myself. (laughs) You. You are strong. No, you'll get too distracted. You're right. I'll stare at myself all day. What's not a Volkswagen? Station wagon. Mm. I didn't write station. Her sleeping daughter on the ground behind the... Oh my God, I just did it again. What is it? A station wagon. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> areola that's it you are correct areola baloney sandwich <laughs> yeah <laughs> he also accused him of this oh my god it's all good no one's in a rush i'm in a rush this is fucking long <laughs> this is a long case oh man i totally went off screen. hold on give me a second hey hey i'm i got my game He's, okay, I got it. He, I got it. I he's got it. good. I'm good. I'm, good. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna do this. Great. This is a crazy thought. Check, check. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. I'm gonna read what I wrote. <laughs> Don't do it. Why start now? I'm the scat man. Excuse me. Ba ba da do da da ta. Ba da 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 ta. You said that, and I thought of that, and then I said it. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy. I just that's her favorite couldn't. song. Follow along that train of thought. She, lo- she loves Welcome karaoke. Welcome to Alicia's world. <laughs> she loves karaokeing that song. Yeah, I do. I have a dance and everything. Just kidding. I do not and would not. Oh, in a car? You know I listen to podcasts. I don't really listen to music anymore. Excuse you. I was quoting Green Eggs and Ham. Oh, in a car, in a bar. Is that in there? <laughs> That's how I remember that. I book. would not, could not sing Scatman in a bar. This one, this one, I was just being awful. I'm trying to be dramatic. That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) When really, it just comes so naturally. I know. He was attractive, tall and lean, and he was node to the node. I have a node on my butt. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't node. (laughs) Oh, that's funny because Lorene was a drummer. Oh, no, I don't need any of that. I literally cried every episode of the new Sex in the City thing. Ew. It's terrible, and I still it's so cry. Bad? No. Getting older. No, I'm just ovulating. <laughs> oh, that, me too. <laughs> it turned out police never interviewed Boo. Oh, I just keep ending sentences before they end. Hmm. I need a back rub. <laughs> <laughs>
while she does her investigation. Did you guys? Yeah, I'm going to talk about that. Oh, fuck. (laughs) To help her investigate. What? I'm not even. uh, Here I go again. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, oh boy. Give me a second. I need to learn how to read real quick. (laughs) Ah, real time editing. My favorite pastime. Okay. Your favorite pasta? (laughs) Mm. I like pasta. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> it's back. Like a good mom. Yep. Uh, State Farm is there? there. Oh my god, I was just yeah. gonna say that. It is. Same wavelength. Haysbert. Not on that one though. <laughs> what is that? Dennis Haysbert. Oh no, he's You're ta- we're talking about Jake and you're talking about Allstate. Oh, are they different? Oh. Yes. Jake Far- is from State Farm. Allstate is Dennis Haysbert. You're I'm sorry, guys. You're in good hands with all skate. Like a gecko. That's right. Aww. Progressive. That fake British accent on that guy. He's that Geico gecko. He's a little gecko. Is it real, though? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. I'll look into it before call I host up. my insurance party. I'm holding right now to call him. She seemed more than willing to talk to them what she had seen that night about. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> For your information, British actor Jake Wood is the voice of the Geico Gecker, Gecko, you. giving it the famous Cockney accent. He's best known for oh, his long-running role on EastEnders. Oh. Do you know who the original Geico Gecko voice was? It um, was. Was it your mom? No. Wait. Richard Grieco. <laughs> Grieco the Gecko. For Geico? No. I'll give you a hint. Tossed salad and scrambled eggs. Niles Crane. The other one, it was Kelsey Grammer. The old salad tosser. And then they just couldn't afford him anymore? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, probably. probably, yeah. Wait, he's alive, right? Kelsey Grammer? Yeah. Yeah, He almost wasn't when he fell off that stage. You ever seen that video? (laughs) He's just doing like some sort of talk and he just steps off the end of a stage and takes a a corner of another part of the stage to like the sternum. Very funny. <laughs> you little rascal. I'm such a rascal. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you more. I'm on a page of 16 I, fun facts let's of the wait. Geico Gecko. You How about know. we wait until we like have a lull in our conversation someday? Do <laughs> you think we'll ever have a lull in our conversation? No, but I'll save this. I've never met two people I can more easily talk to about literally nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, last thing. What's his real name? The gecko has a name. Um, I already said it. Gary. No, but that's not a bad name. It's Richard Gecko. It's not. Gordon. It's Martin. Martin? Martin what? Martin A. Gecko? Um, Okay. I do I do talk a little bit, so you you can slip it in there. You you just see what's right. Just slip it in there. Just just tap, tap it in. (laughs) (laughs) Crime, and she assured him. Oh my, Emily. Oh my, Lanta. <laughs> when I screw up, I take a sip of water and act like it didn't happen. Oh, good. I'm very hydrated today. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you probably should change God Given. God, I, I did. Like yeah. Told the Jane is going to get us for that one. I just finished. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even write. I didn't write that. So. So, Tilda Jean, get the fuck off our back. <laughs> okay. I don't write any of this down. <laughs> This conflicted with the police deport, deport, (laughs) deport me right now. (laughs) Meeting Godwin would be four to five. 
meaning I know I heard it. <laughs> the park is a state controlled rest area on the eep. There were. <clears throat> Wouldn't. <laughs> I cannot wait to make a compilation of. <laughs> um, <clears throat> in the very late. Okay. Start over. They pulled up to the Forest Glen at the state police female bicycle and Loretta's two children, seven year Okay. Now first he was also to Terry, that was eight. Allow the police Oh no. <laughs> she studied his pictures clearly as five Terry managed to get on the phone with Godwin's ex. In fact, it pushed the actual suspect a bit. Actual. Stop. At the. Terry was taken aback. What? Three. They explained to Kathy that they. Slow down. You only have 23 pages to go. Just kidding. <laughs> This is actually a whole season of our show. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Love that. And didn't have much self-esteem. She... I'm too tired. Tires and how they matched his... I thought to send you off to your surgery, I'd give you as many edits as possible this week. <laughs> his, his name, I think, is Fart. Oh, yeah, you're right. The youth was charged by Deschutes. I cannot talk. This is the hardest sentence I've ever spoken. I feel like I have dentures in. Quote, with a... <laughs> no, say it good. <laughs> the deceptive results of which made... Um, I'm sorry. Can you, can you turn me... No. Can you turn me up? Maybe a little? Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. and take my boss. <laughs> <laughs>